Welcome to season four of The Culture of Kindness. My name is Nahala Summers and I am your host. A culture of kindness is based on the idea that by bringing kindness into leadership, we reduce stress, anxiety, make happier workplaces, and in turn, improve the bottom line for any organization or institution. It is a book, leadership program, accreditation, and of course, this wonderful podcast. Kindness has been my life's work since I founded the social movement for kindness back in 2012 called Sunshine People. And it has kept me interested on what people have to say on the complexities of kindness ever since. The guest lineup is exceptional. From politicians to social media influencers, best-selling authors to BBC presenters, an eclectic mix of people who all have completely different views on kindness, how we get it and where the world is currently at. If you enjoy this episode, then please do show your support for kindness by subscribing to the podcast, leave a five-star review or simply invest in the book, aptly named A Culture of Kindness, available on Amazon. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. Neil Hawkes, thank you so much for coming and being a guest on A Culture of Kindness podcast. You are so welcome. I'm really excited to speak to you um, because you're bringing a whole new side to A Culture of Kindness through better understanding not only values, which is everything. Anyone who understands the culture of kindness theory knows it's all about values, but also around education and anyone who I speak to who's in a position of CEO or founder or anyone they're saying the importance of our education system um, and they, they're understanding it they see people uh, coming into a into their workplaces and they think yeah education is so important so it's it's an absolute joy to have you here what everybody should watch your TEDx for starters let's uh, refer everyone to that um, but maybe if you could start off, let's uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and the things that really make you happy. <clears throat> no, no, it's uh, it's a real joy to be with you today, and I I'm so thrilled that you've uh, chosen humble little me to come on your your podcast this morning. Um, it's a it's a real pleasure and privilege. Um, one thing I always find difficult is talking about me. Um, I always, in my talks, put the spotlight on other people. Um, I'm very proud to call myself a teacher, and I love teaching. I love teaching at all levels. Um, I was trained as a teacher um, in Oxfordshire at a place called Cullum College. It was a, uh, a college of education uh, linked to Oxford University. And uh, I went there, and I had the most amazing experiences. And I met some incredible mentors. Um, in my third year, a, a fellow student said, Neil, if you can go to South Stoke Primary School for one of your TPs, teaching practice. So I, I was lucky because I went for my final teaching practice, practice to South Stoke, which was a very, very small school. It only had uh, two classes. Can you imagine it? And uh, the head teacher was a man called Peter Long. Peter Long was the most incredible mentor. 
Um, I just watched him. I often say that I'm a people watcher. My people watching started really with Peter Long. I just watched this man and I thought if I could be just some reflection of Peter, then I would feel a bit successful. Why do I say this? Well, his relationships with children were superb. He he had this understanding of the distance you have to have between a pupil and yourself, which isn't so close that it becomes gooey and you know everyone's over familiar and all that. And neither is it a long way away where people feel distant. He just had this knack, which some human beings have, of judging where you should be in relationship terms with children. And he was obviously very loved by the children. And because they felt so safe, so secure, what the children were able to achieve was outstanding. And I realized watching Peter that really, if you're going to be an outstanding teacher, you have to have relationships which are so meaningful, which switches on people, which this incredible connection. So a good teacher for me is somebody who is able to connect with another human being. Mm-hmm. And as I, one of my, as I'm getting older now, I, one of the things I say is that uh, I've probably visited more classrooms in the world than anybody else now around, because my, my work as a teacher has taken me all over the world. So I've, I've had this incredible experience of watching lots of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, it always comes down to, to them. And before I leave Peter behind, um, it was his stability of his internal world so that he was never one day one thing, the next day the other. Mm-hmm. He probably had lots going on in his life. But when he was with the children, he was with the children. And so I, he became my role model. And during my career, I've always thought in, in at moments, oh, what would Peter do now? And it usually leads me down the right path. So that's one of my incredible mentors. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. And it's such an important lesson, actually, for us all to remember that we focus on people and we that we don't feel envious of them and we don't feel this kind of um, competition, but we go, oh, we just want to embody actually all of those good traits of that person. What a what a great lesson for us uh, to learn about Peter. Yes. <laughs> I, I There are so many questions because you're part of so much. Your education, um, your, your life in education is wide and varied as you as you've spoken about um, in not just in the UK, but um, across other countries and your ambassadors and, and also a number of different roles within education. And we're going to move on to values-based education shortly. But I am interested in you are doing some work. You're an ambassador and I know I won't get the name right, but you will kindly correct me, no doubt. Um, the ambassador for within education development within the UK. Um, please do correct me. But um, what what are the conversations that you've been having around the table around um, education development in the UK 
And what are the changes going to look like that you've been part of? Well, that's an interesting question. The Federation of Education uh, Development. And I must say to you, Nala, that I'm quite a new addition to this group. Um, Someone that I've worked with a little bit, uh, someone who was a Secretary of State, Nicky Morgan. Uh, Nicky Morgan wrote a book about character. And uh, during that time she was writing it, um, she asked me uh, if I could sort of talk to her about values and things. And she very kindly included me uh, in her book. And uh, she's now Baroness Morgan. uh, And she suggested to the Federation that I might be a useful person to come alongside uh, on the areas of values and character development. Mm -hmm. Because what Fed is looking for is a a long-term plan for education in England. It hasn't got one. It's amazing that we do not have any long-term plan. What happens is that a secretary of state is appointed by a, a various political party and or they then go out the next moment and people say, well, what's your plan for education? And they think, well, I haven't got a plan yet. They wouldn't say this publicly, of course, but I know that they would think it privately. And so... Um, really, we've suffered terribly, I think, in England by us not having a plan which teachers and educators, uh, communities can all get together behind looking what are the elements that we need uh, to develop in our schools and our colleges, which will actually make our society uh, well-educated, but in the theme of this talk, you know, how can we have happy, stable uh, people who are contributors uh, to our society in challenging times? Because, you know, it's no picnic living in 2022. Um, It requires a lot of resilience and and empathy and all those uh, personal things. Um, And so the Federation is looking at that and has already re- produced one report, which listeners can look at online. And over this year, the conversation is broadening out. And my role, along with a number of others, is to spread the news. And as I'm doing now, to get people interested in thinking, yes, England needs a plan. We shouldn't lurch from one thing to the other. And I'm sure that will carry favor with all professionals as well as people in communities. So that's that's the federation. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And I'm sure there'll be people who will be listening who think, oh, I'm going to take a look at that. I'm going to jump back because I will be interested in talking more about that. But, but actually, let's talk about your kind of lifelong work, really, incredible work. And people can read your books and, and understand more about your work on your website as well. But let's talk about it. And um, it's about the idea of values-based education. Maybe if you want to share a little bit about that and that journey, and then I can deep dive into it. <laughs> yes, this is my meaning and purpose in life meaning and purpose in life. Uh, I I could obviously talk for a long time about values-based education and its genesis. Um, 
But I think in, in my uh, TED talk, which you kindly referred to, I mentioned an occasion where I took a team of teachers uh, from Buckinghamshire. I was a county advisor in Buckinghamshire at one stage of my career. And, I, and we went to Israel and uh, I visited the memorial to the Holocaust. And I went to one particular memorial, which is the memorial to the children who were murdered. And if you visit this place, it's, it's like a cave and you walk through the entrance and it takes some time for your eyes to get accomped, uh, accustomed to the darkness. And then suddenly you, you're aware of candlelight and it's the most beautiful scene. And you think that there are sort of thousands of candles in this, this room, but actually it's only a few candles, but they're being reflected on glass. And you're invited to walk around the, the memorial. And as you walk, you just hear the recitation of the children's names who were murdered. I walked around and I felt so incredibly sad. And I came outside and it was the most brilliant sunny day. And I can remember the sunshine on my face as the tears rolled down my face. And at that moment, I thought, I must, in my little way, do, do just something to help children in the future. Um, I must make some contribution. Um, so I came back to this country and that experience and many others led me to, to deeply thinking about what contribution I could make. At the same time, I was noticing that more and more children were coming to schools without what I later called an ethical vocabulary. Uh, they didn't seem to understand what words such as respect, tolerance, even happiness. You know, what, what on earth do these words mean? And, and I became fascinated in this. And I thought, what would happen if we uh, ran an experiment, really? What would happen if we uh, introduce an ethical vocabulary into a school really holistically, not in a token way, not, oh, we'll look at these words on Tuesday afternoon at two o'clock. What would happen if we underpinned the whole school, the policies, everything with a set of universal positive human values? So I got at Oxford University interested in this, and I resigned my position as, as chief advisor of the Isle of Wight service, and I, I found a headship in Oxfordshire. And uh, it's the most marvelous place. <laughs> Unfortunately, it had burned down, would you believe, Ooh. on firework night. Someone had put some bangers through the front door. We're laughing now, but it wasn't funny at the time. No, no. Really distressing. And, no. But it reduced this building, except for the nursery. The nursery survived because the firemen turned up in time. So I thought, well, because the advertisement said wanted head teacher, and in small print it said school just burned down. <laughs> so I thought, well, this is the place for me. I, you know, I must, you know, have a go at this. So rise I, it up from the ashes, Neil. That's right, like Pegasus. <laughs> you know? 
So I applied and um, they very kindly said, yeah, all right, you've been a chief advisor. Don't know if you could be a head teacher again, but we'll give you a go. And um, so I, I just came to this beautiful community. Uh, Nala, you sometimes life goes in mysterious ways. And this was one of the moments where I felt I was being taken somewhere. I wasn't being, I wasn't choosing it. It chose me. And I worked for seven years with the most amazing set of teachers and uh, support staff. They were incredible. And I had an incredibly supportive governing body and the community, the parents. Um, I brought them all on board because one of my things is that there should um, the, the role of the leader is to release the creative dynamic of everybody who works in an organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, another is that there should never be a hierarchy of relationships, only a hierarchy of roles in a school. So it was very much an us environment, although as, as appointed leader, I always took the can. I said, if everything goes pear-shaped, don't worry, folk, I'll carry it. Um, but I just released, I think I released my own creativity and everybody else's. And we just worked to introduce these these words and we did it through the community. We didn't impose, you know, this this wasn't laminated values on walls. This was in pioneering days before people thought about values. Nowadays, everybody gets on this bandwagon but but we we were the first school to to um, articulate and make explicit a set of values which were community chosen not me saying oh we must all think about these words Um, so we experimented so we introduced the words which were 22 we had 11 uh, for on one year and 11 another year in a a cycle so that in the six years of primary education, a child would revisit the value three times at a deeper depth. They were introduced in assemblies, which I know you're very keen about good quality assemblies. And I used to spend hours working out how my assemblies could be the best that I could make them. This wasn't, let's find a book five minutes before the assembly. And I used to spend all Sunday afternoon thinking, what can I do to inspire the children, to make that bridge between home and school really exciting? And so we introduced the assemblies, which were very dynamic and creative. And then teachers would look at greater depth at the value during the week in an experiential way not talking and boring the children. So that was the explicit side. Implicitly, these words were used all the time by staff. So children would come in and say, oh, well done, you lot. You know, you've you've really come in and cooperated. You've shown so much friendship. Wow. And and so that language became, and that language then became a part of the children's vocabulary. And it became a part of the parents' vocabulary which was amazing. At the same time, I introduced 
what now seems quite commonplace again in many schools, but I introduced what I called reflection, reflective practice, which many people call mindfulness now. Mm. But I wanted to see what would happen if you empowered the internal world of a child. What would happen if you really made them self-leaders so that they could actually be the agent of their own development? And so those two major things. There's a third one, Nala, and that is the, the ability of all the adults to agree to model the values. Easy for me to say. It's more difficult in practice. But over that time, everybody, and I mean everybody, modeled the school's values, which then had this incredible effect. And you know, the, the doctorate I wrote about this work, um, you know, says it all if anyone's interested in, in seeing the research. Um, but we became quite well known. Australia wanted to um, implement values work there. So I became a regular visitor to Australia and all around the world. What, what's so amazing is how this now is in thousands of schools worldwide and millions of children are in values-based schools, and they don't know where it's all come from, many of them, you know, they just do it. Um, but I would say, finally, because I don't want to overdo this, finally, it's, it's about adults really understanding themselves enough so that they can model the values. And secondly, having consistency across the whole school. Consistency is really important, but it takes some work. It's very hard work to achieve that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and you're so right. You, um, I think our actions, I talk about this often, is our actions, we never really understand the impact that we make. We don't know who d adopts an idea and then starts on that. And then that person talks to three other people. And then somebody's talking about it at a conference. And then, you know, and and it, it starts to go out. And um, I think that's very true of uh, value-based education and what you've started there. You know, when you look on so many schools' websites, um, and I think, you know, you've really got that within primary schools, this value-based, you know, you hear the teachers, it's kind of really, when you get in secondary schools, there's this, um, it's a different, it's a very different education between primary and secondary, you know, actually they're poles apart in the way that they function. But when we look at secondary schools, like on the websites, they'll go, these are our, these are our values. But I think most many teachers would say, actually, it's tougher than you would imagine to bring the values based, you know, work in in secondary schools because the way that the curriculum has historically been. Would you say that was true? Would you say would you agree with that? You're now in a, in a very complex area. Um, <clears throat> secondary schools are exam factories. They're about how you uh, equip children to pass exams so that they can have the qualifications to uh, be rooted into either university or some other aspect of society. And that's the way secondary schools have been set up. 
as you rightly say, that they are a different, quite a different organization. And I have great admiration for secondary schools. I'm not uh, at all, don't misunderstand me, anything I say, critical. I, I think my criticism comes in the system and the generation of a system that really, in my view, is outmoded, out old-fashioned, and isn't fit for purpose now. Mm. Um, I've One of my great honours has been over the last two years to be a member of the uh, what's called the V20 group. The V20 group is the group of so-called world experts in, in this area. And last year, I, I teamed up with a professor in in California, Marco, and uh, we wrote a paper, uh, really, which I think could help secondary schools. And it's it's about making sure that you your whole school is what I call ethics centric, uh, so that it that underpinning of of an ethics centric way of being in the school. Uh, which in primary schools you'd say it's values-based, but ethics-centric, so so that then you think, how does the curriculum fit? At the moment, what happens is that you have the subject areas, and then you have things like PSHE, which really, in my view, are tokenism. It's, it's almost bolt-on, and uh, but doesn't have the clout of the other subjects. But so... What we need is a, a system which really, really does think ethically. So in science, for instance, one of the things we mentioned in the paper was the, the fourth industrial revolution, which is AI, artificial intelligence. Mm. And, you know, we're steaming down that route. And at some point, people are going to say, hey, hang on, who's programming these, this artificial intelligence? What ethics is behind it. And, you know, I can see debates in the future where saying, oh my gosh, why did we allow that to happen? Because we're not helping young people to think ethically. We're helping them to pass exams. Um, there's a great quote um, from an American principal that talks about um, uh, educated, uh, be, being educated in subjects. But he then talks about where you can be incredibly educated in subjects, but then go and become, for instance, a member of the Gestapo. You know, they were all educated people. But what do you mean by educated? For me, an educated person is someone who has tremendous altruism, who is able to have empathy who has what I've termed ethical intelligence, yeah. which is the ability to ethically self-regulate your own behavior. If we have children being educated in secondary schools that are enabled to develop ethical intelligence, yeah. and, and uh, then we will find that the outcome will be quite different. The sort of society we need, and what I was banging on about with the V20 is that there's no point in us trying to achieve the United Nations sustainable goals, unless the leadership of this world has ethical intelligence. 
And when you look about what's happening now in the world, and I won't name names, uh, but you can see how these leaders are not ethically intelligent. They just haven't got a clue. They're interested in power, in ego. They want to be noticed. Uh, and therefore, they, they lead people in an inappropriate way. And for some reason, because they have charisma, they're able to take people along. Hitler was the, you know, he had incredible charisma. You know, the German people were in a, a desperate position in that time. They, you know, things had gone badly wrong in the economy. And what worries me in, in this country, in the United Kingdom, is because things are very challenging, people then are looking for leadership which will help them. At the moment, people are worried about their, their fuel bills and, mm -hmm. and all that. And, and therefore, if someone gets up and say, oh, follow me, I've got the answer, you know, and people will say, yeah, well, give this person a try, but that person may be totally unethical, but people are conned. So we need to educate young people so that they know when they're being led badly and they in turn have to be ethically self-led themselves. I hope I'm not getting too heavy with you. No, no, it's absolutely Absolutely. It's so incredibly important. I mean, I do often think, surely we should be doing tests for this before people are allowed to go and run countries. Like, surely there should be some ethical testing, some emotional intelligence, some you know, understanding of empathy, you know, standing in the shoes of every person that they represent, you know, every level. Um, yet we're, we do appear to be, just from an outsider's point of view, and I do avoid the news now, but from an outsider's point of view, we seem very far from that right now. And, um, and any sort of kind of value-based work really I'm I, so no you're very on the nail not too deep at all I think these conversations yeah. need to be had but you know it's, it's interesting and I've said this a few times of late because I was talking to a friend of mine about it you know as I am I'm a blind optimist about everything you know I just believe that everything will be okay and um which can be the greatest thing and also the worst thing because it means I find myself doing things that I probably shouldn't uh, have a go at. But what we talked about, myself and my friend talked about, was that, you know, we will be, we, we are more enlightened than our parents, ultimately, in terms of emotionally and, and, and able to, m most people, let's just, if we try to generalise it, but the young people that are coming up will be, again, more enlightened than us. You know, the, the whole idea of mindfulness, the whole idea of tuning in to understanding, OK, what am I going to do? I, I feel anxiety right now, talking to themselves. You know, all of these things, I, I didn't have. We didn't have those conversations. It was very much, come on then, get, you know, don't cry, get on with it. You know, that was just... And it's served me very well. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not, you know, it's good. It's allowed me to get on with things. But having that touch of being able to understand our emotions, to be able to tune into those things, to manage those um, 
conversations. And I think, you know, you touched on the PSHE, which is something that's been around for years and years and years. Come on, we want you to do PSHE. Feed it into your um, curriculum. But it's not actually been done. So now there's a set criteria for it again. But I think you're right, really. It's it's not it's not really embedding it, is it, at all, really, um, on that PSHE. And also, we have to be very careful. I, there is this myth. It's a myth as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Success is measured by the number of places at university. And I've seen now countless young people trotting off to university who, in my view, and I may be wrong, would have been better suited to doing something else. But there is this push. I remember hearing a really senior educationist from a certain government department. He was speaking in in the southwest of England and he was talking at a head teachers conference and he was saying, we're not satisfied with the, the, you don't have enough children going to university from the southwest. You know, they could be judges, they could be this, they could be that. And I was thinking, this chap is on another planet. What actually makes these people in the southwest happy? What what jobs need to be developed for them in the Southwest? You know, I've chatted to many fishermen, for instance, uh, you know, but their children are being told, no, you've got to go to the north of England to be educated in a university and spend three years chatting to your mates. And then you come out and you haven't got the skills to actually be a fisherman. Um, (laughs) But you so you so we've got to really think clearly. You know, Germany has a much more enlightened view, in my view, about, you know, skills and how we work in society. Mm. Uh, Last Sunday, um, a chap visited me. I live in Rutland and I'm very privileged to live near Rutland Water. And uh, we have a few trees. And I I got a young guy called Tom to come and visit. And I said, oh, Tom, you know, and he told me everything I needed to know. He was the most intelligent, empathetic, person relational. He he had every skill. And I said, oh, have you been to university? Oh, no, I wanted to get out and do the job. And he's doing the job. And I said, how many people work for you, Tom? He said, oh, 20 now. You know, but some Mandarin would have said, no, Tom, don't do that. Go to university. I'm not knocking university because I often give talks at university. Some people do need to go to university. This country needs to encourage highly um, motivated people who want that, who really want that life, to do that. But we also need people now in this country to do a whole range of other jobs. So that what I'm getting to really is we shouldn't make people's worth be measured in somebody else's, you know, view oh you're only worth Uh, a dear friend of mine runs a special school uh in the north of england and he he told me that he'd he'd not going to have ofsted anymore in his school because he's an independent school so he's choosing the independent people now because he was fed up with ofsted coming in and saying ridiculous things about his children they didn't have the, the particular inspectors, I'm not generalizing, 
that they didn't understand that these children who, I won't go into details, but are, come from families where they've, their life chances have been horrendous. Mm. And these children need nurturing and love in a way that, you know, that the system doesn't take account of. They, oh, no, why aren't you getting, he was asked, more children into higher education? And some of these children had spent years being abused, you know, totally uh, off the wall. So he's come out of the system. And I, I think so. I think systems yeah. are often run by people who are very able. They're workaholics and workaholics always look for lots of things for the rest of us to do. And I've got to put my hand up. I'm a bit of a workaholic, too. So I, I've, I've done that to people. So that's probably why I'm aware. But we need to bring into the system, and I'm hoping Fed will do this, uh, a realization of how we unlock our incredible potential in this country. Mm. Uh, we have great people. I've got absolute confidence in our people, but they need systems which will unlock that potential and and people who will lead the country who will help us to be uh, uh, you know really good i've spent a lot of time nala in in uh, scandinavian countries and i often feel more comfortable in scandinavian social environments yeah and if i just quickly say why the United States is the most extreme example, but and the example is of a difference between rich and non-rich. The difference is huge in the United States. Uh, the difference in the United Kingdom is huge too, not as wide as the United States. In Scandinavia, it's much closer. And what, in my view, from an economic point of view, you need to create a middle class don't like that term, but you know what I mean. You need us all to be somewhere in the middle. So there's not, there's not an under, underbelly and there's not the top bit. Mm. Now, I'm not looking for a social revolution of communism or something, so don't misunderstand me. But it is about how we work together to create a society that is, is more equitable. Yeah. Um, but if I leave Scandinavia, if I go to New Zealand, where I go, uh, what I did before lockdown quite regularly, you also have an education system there that is much more freed up from examinations. I have a daughter who works in, in an English department in North Auckland, and she left England because she couldn't stand the, the demands of the, the secondary education system in England. Yeah. And she's found in uh, New Zealand something quite more enlightening. Yeah. Uh, they would say here that it's far too relaxed. We ought to have far more inspections and, you know, put the whip on the teachers, get them, you know, I don't agree with that. No, no, that's right. There's a there's a certainly a lack of trust, isn't there, within the education system to say, actually, you know, we we have to allow teachers to have the creativity. Um, and as you say, you know, there's a lot of checklists. And, I, you know, I think to, I always thought to myself, if we measured on um, emotional intelligence and um, 
that kind of thing. If we didn't measure what the outcome was, was how much they could remember about history, for example, and we only rated ourselves on how good we were in our education system by emotional intelligence, I thought, wow, wouldn't that wouldn't that make a difference? Because what would then happen is because you are more emotionally intelligent, you're able to take in information better. But I've, I've got this theory around the whole idea. I was just talking to my old art teacher, actually. And uh, last week about I had a cup of coffee with her. But I said, wouldn't it be wonderful if actually we live in this world where you can teach yourself anything? I can go onto the Internet and I can learn anything I want. You know, you can literally learn to change the taps on your sink if you want to from YouTube and you can also understand every history lesson in the history of the world right um so we can learn all of this ourselves but what if we turned it around and we then said okay the students have to teach the teachers on topics and they have to present it in a certain way they choose you know maybe they do a presentation one week on PowerPoint, which, you know, they're learning how to do. They can they can use iPads at the age of three. You know, it's very easy. I went and did a talk in a school and I said, you know, if you want to make video, it was part of a project. If you want to make videos, they were, they were on an iPad. They were making these videos about kindness. It was unbelievable. They had only 30 minutes and they'd already done it. It was, it was just like out of this world. And, um, thought what if you could like pick those subjects and they say okay you get to choose it and now you have to educate the teachers I thought then it gives people I'm gonna I'm gonna learn the things I really want to learn not what you're telling me I'm not really interested and then I've got to regurgitate it in two years time on an exam that I don't really want to sit in that makes me feel uneasy anyway um and it's a little pipe dream you know it feels so far from where we are I realise that, but that's that's what I think about education, really. Uh, I, I would have loved you to have been, you know, you took me back then to a visit I made to Shrovda in Sweden, mm-hmm. and I was visiting a secondary school, and the, the children were doing exactly what you've just said. Really? And uh, my wife, Jane, and I were involved in the, the feedback session where the youngsters were talking about what they had discovered. And... And the important point to make in all this is it's often, you know, if I take, go back 30, 35 years, um, project work got a very bad name in schools because it lacked rigor and, you know, it was something kids, oh, get on and find out about. And it didn't have that, you know, didn't have that... um, Yes, yes, rigor, I think will do as a word. Um, and I think we've moved on a lot. You said earlier, you know, about not having any trust. I won't name the chief inspector's name, but I knew him quite well. And he said to me, Neil, he said, we don't trust teachers. You know, wow. there are a lot of lefty trenders in secondary education. We need to pin them down. So what we're going to do is we have a an inspect, national inspection system, and we will then have also league tables. So that'll sort them out. And so you're quite right. Um, and that's what happened because they said, 
we weren't we weren't doing well enough across all schools. Now, there were issues in the system, definitely. But uh, you know, if you take Tim Brickhouse, lovely Professor Tim Brickhouse, he in Oxfordshire introduced something called OSEA, which was a, a system of peer review looking at schools, each other's schools as principals. And, and it was rigorous. And it was a way of helping each other to progress. His OSEA methods didn't. You know, they were overtaken by national events. Uh, but what you're talking about is a flavor of all that sort of thinking where you trust people. What I said as a head teacher, if I, my skill was in, in pointing really great people um, I've talked in other places about how you do that, so I won't take up time now. But if you if you appoint really wonderful people, they may not be on paper. The you know I can remember a young lady I appointed as in, into the school, and if I'd done a sift on academic qualification, she wouldn't have been in the top twenty. Nice. But I wasn't looking for that. I was looking for something else. So I. I saw her, I said, go and teach that class and I'll come in with you. Don't be nervous because I'll join in with you. And I saw this incredible potential in this girl. She just had it, the way the children responded to her. I thought, yes, you're going to be great. So I pointed her and she was great, you know. So we get fixated with academic, and I'm so pleased you're talking about emotional intelligence. For me, emotional intelligence is a subset of, of uh, ethical intelligence. Yes. Um, but those are what the qualities that we need in people to influence so that they are people who can release this creativity in young people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, yeah, we have to learn lots of stuff. Of course we do. But I'd love someone to tell me why year three in a primary needs to learn about uh, prefrontal adverbial clauses now. I, you know, I've written many books and it wasn't until I visited a year three class recently that I knew what a prefrontal adverbial clause is. So, you know, this is the nonsense of the system. I have a granddaughter who's very able and she gets so bored at school because she does this stuff, you know, which has isn't in context. You know, oh, if you're yeah. if you say, let's become real writers today, right? What are we going to write about? And and you're really enthusiastic as a writer. And then you're looking at it. How can we recraft this? What can we do to tweak it? So let's read it aloud. Oh, yes, you've spotted that. And that's the way that you create good writing. <laughs> yeah. But the people have been saying that for ages. But uh, there we are. See, I remember doing. I remember that time. I must have been. I must be old enough um, that there was this kind of project work I and I think there's there still is but it's very minimal and it's within the parameters that you're allowed to do it so you have to go away and rather than them going actually I'm really interested in the world war I'm really interested in 1066 or how you know actually the political history or something you know for 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 a child to decide that or be guided and helped, of course, for them to look up and decide. But I can remember, and the difference, this is where the difference lies, is we have in the last 10 years 
transformed the way that we can research and learn. So I can remember going to the local library and going to the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that was it. That was all we had really in the local library that I could use. And there was a few other books. And so I used to kind of get that out and then copy stuff from it. And da, 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 da. you didn't really learn about reading stuff, digesting, you know, the information, how you transferred that. You didn't, you didn't learn about any of those things. But actually, it's one of the most important skills that I could have done with. And I've kind of learned myself as I've gone on in life. But if I learned that at school, you know, some of the things that I'm, you know, doing, as you rightly said about the assemblies and the assembly program that Sunshine People produce and, and all of those things, it's about kind of giving those tools and just a little bit of awareness. It's not even about, you know, hours of teaching and work. It's about, for me in education, it's about planting the seeds because we still get that, right? We still as adults get that and somebody plants a seed and you go, oh, yeah, you know, and you continue to water it and it grows into something. And uh, I think that's that's where, where we need to get to with education. But as you say, I think you've got to have that kind of ethical intelligence within the people that are making the decisions. I'd like to give you an example of what I saw in a London school only two weeks ago. Um, I was with year six. And they were doing, uh, they were having a lesson looking at um, fertility mm. and the ethics behind certain fertility. I, I'd seen this in year 10 in secondary once before, but I'd never seen it at year six. Mm. And they were looking at ethical dilemmas. Now, one of the things I promote in schools is looking at ethical dilemmas because ethical dilemmas are brilliant for developing critical thinking. Mm. One thing we need children to have is the ability to, to critique, to have critical thinking. Uh, often I think our masters and mistresses don't want us to have critical thinking. They want us to just go along with the systems and things and not challenge. And I've always loved children who challenge. I, I, I always appointed feisty staff who would challenge because if you challenge in the right way, you take the organization further, uh, not being frightened in a relationship. Anyway, this, this class was looking at this and I watched this incredible teacher um, just with so much empathy and so much understanding. And the children were giving their views on what they thought was okay and what wasn't okay. And they all had different views and she didn't put down anybody saying, oh, that's not right or anything. She was curious. Curiosity is a wonderful thing to have in the classroom. So she was always curious. Why did you say that? Well, that's interesting. I hadn't considered that. And then at one point in the lesson, Nala, she talked about her, one, one of her relations that had had two children who uh, had um, a life-threatening disease, a, a cystic fibrosis. Mm. And she said, if we knew in the family that the children were going to have this, and my sister could, I think it was her sister, could have decided not to have the children, but she went ahead and had the children. At this point, the teacher 
burst into tears in the classroom because it affected her, the story did, so emotionally. But the wonderful part of the lesson was that the children's empathy for this teacher, they didn't all laugh and sort of, oh, teachers cry. They just had this amazing holding of her mm. uh, with so much love and compassion. And that is a values-based school in action. And that, you can talk about values, but unless you see it in action, and I saw it in that classroom, and I saw it in the rest of the school too, an amazing school, mm. Bell Lane Primary School in London. Um, some lovely teaching going on there. Yeah, but, you know, in schools like that, Ofsted will come and say, well, you're not doing this and that in the basic subjects. So, you know, you're, you know, we're going to put you on needs improvement or something. Uh, but they won't see that, that the higher order skills, the children are learning stuff in their community, which will stop them going into knife crime, drugs and all the rest of it because they've had these conversations and have been led by people who really understand the nature of human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Neil, I, I feel like we could talk forever um, and we probably will. I, I hope to continue conversations and include you in my uh, continued research next at uh, the end of the year. But um, I always end on the same question. What does a culture of kindness mean to you um, and the world that you live in? That's an amazing question. A culture of kindness always, for me, begins with us really deeply going inside ourselves and understanding ourselves. For me, we are not one personality, we are multi-personalities. As we grow up in the world, we develop aspects of ourselves. But at the heart of each one of us, there is uh, an original essence, our soul, you could call it, or authentic self, you could call it, whatever that is. But when we live from that authentic nature that I believe all human beings have, although many mask it, then we have a culture that's altruistic. And if you're altruistic, then kindness is a natural ingredient of that culture. What a way to end. Thank you so much, Neil, for your time. I've been incredibly moved by this and inspired. We'll take so much, as I'm sure all the guests will as well. Be looking up all your details. Thank you so much. It's been a great joy talking to you, Nala. Much love and thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you have loved this episode, please do share it with others. Pop on and give a lovely review, but mostly take forwards into your life something that can change someone else's. We are looking for the elusive happiness and kindness is the action that can get us there.